Chapter 10 Embracing Discipline From Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The Overlooked Everything We've all seen training montages in movies. You know what I'm talking about. We're showing a bunch of short scenes between when the hero decides that he or she has to do something and the climax when he does it. Whether it's in Mulan, Rocky 3 and 4, Pumping Iron, Batman Begins, G.I. Jane, The Karate Kid, Kung Fu Panda, or Wonder Woman, we're always shown a sequence of training clips set to dramatic music so we know our hero has worked really hard to prepare for their great conflict. And yes, I'm listening to I'll Make a Man Out of You while writing this. As dramatic as it is, though the sequence usually doesn't last more than 90 seconds, if that, that's because the most decisive part of the story is also the most boring. The part of the story that takes the longest in real life gets the least screen time. This can give us the impression that such transformations are either fairly simple to achieve or impossible for normal mortals. But neither is true. It is true that humans are weak, especially if we expect to be. We of all creatures on earth take the longest to develop. We have no weapons or shields built into our bodies. We can't fly or regenerate limbs. But we do have three advantages that make us utterly unlike Earth's other creatures. The first two are pretty commonly recognized. Opposable thumbs and the capacity for higher thought. While the third advantage is lesser known, it is at least as important. We have a greater capacity for disciplined mastery. Other animals may practice things and develop rudimentary skills, but not like humans. Not in the same developmental way that produces terrific mastery over one's body and environment. If you compare two lions or ostriches, their abilities will be almost identical. But compare the average Joe with a Navy SEAL a concert pianist, a professional mathematician, a master woodworker, or anyone who has mastered something, and you'll see a great difference. We human beings, while maybe seeming like little more than mostly hairless bipeds, have the God-given ability to shape ourselves with will and discipline in a way that most of us can't imagine. We who have been coddled by secular modernity and technological marvels have incredibly low opinions of human capability. Think of how we sometimes talk about the poor, as though they are irrational livestock that are incapable of choice, self-control, commitment, moral rectitude, and rationality. People didn't used to talk this way. This is a prejudice of modernity. Consider also how easily we let ourselves off the hook morally. I can't tell you how many times men have told me it's impossible to look at an attractive woman without lusting after her, much less to thrive in celibacy. Think of how quickly we excuse ourselves for overindulging in anything or for gossiping. I've heard women excuse themselves for adultery as if it were as necessary as defecation. This is nothing new. 
Shakespeare mocks our excuses in King Lear. This is from King Lear, Act 1, Scene 2. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that, when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains of necessity. Fools by heavenly compulsive knaves, thieves and treachers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on, an admiral evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. In the 1600s, people blamed the alignment of the stars for their moral weakness, and in 2017 we blame our genetics and brain chemistry. But is it an evasion, and we know it? For though we excuse ourselves of our own weaknesses, we rage in anger at those who offend and damage us in their weaknesses. We know full well they should have exercised more mastery of themselves. Ninety-nine percent of people who start marathons finish them, though most hit a wall at mile 16. Freedivers spearfish in 70 feet of water just holding their breath, with the record freedive being 702 feet. It's fairly normal for people in diving sports to be able to hold their breath for four minutes, and the record is over 24 minutes. Saracen archers were expected to be able to shoot arrows fast enough that the third arrow was fired before the first arrow hit its target at 70 yards, and they had to do so on horseback just to be considered ready for battle. Forty-day fasts are completely doable. Monks often go without sexual intimacy or even talking for decades, and, contrary to Freudian myth, they don't go crazy. It's not even all that hard once you build up the necessary disciplines. A former Navy SEAL named David Goggins has made popular the training rule of thumb called the 40% rule. This rule says when your mind tells you that you're totally out of gas and can't go any further, You've only used up 40% of your real capacity. You have 60% left. He also happens to have set a world record for the most pull-ups in 24 hours, 4,025. Oh, and until he underwent treatment in 2009, he also suffered from an undetected arterial septal defect, a hole in his heart that limited his heart to about 75% of its normal capacity. That means that when he took third place in the 135-mile race across Death Valley in 2007, it was harder for him than it would have been for you with equal training. With that in mind, for how many minutes can you read in one sitting? How long would you work on a math problem before giving up? How long do you normally stick with a resolution to exercise? Do you hold to that amount of television you predetermined you would watch for the week? How is not eating after 8 p.m. going? What about not talking to your wife, husband, parent, or roommate that way? My point is not to shame you along with myself. I'm trying to give a realistic picture of what's possible and show what a liability our lack of discipline is. I'm not just talking about physical or mental discipline. Morality and spiritual have their own disciplines, even more important ones. But it's critical to remember that even as Jesus calls us to exertion, he does so by grace. We're called to discipline so that we can survive and thrive, so we can accomplish things we never thought possible, 
so we can experience the unleashing not just of our mental and physical capacities, but also of moral and spiritual potential we didn't even know existed. We don't need to kill ourselves any more than we need to let ourselves comfortably off the hook. What we need is the gospel-driven discipline to work and rest in gracious striving. Discipline and Disciplines When Christian leaders teach about spiritual discipline, they usually focus on spiritual disciplines. That refers to a set of practices that help us grow spiritually. It includes things like Bible reading, fasting, prayer, fellowship, listening to preaching, participating in worship, and so on. Spiritual practices are great, but they're not what I'm going to focus on here. Rather than starting with spiritual disciplines, I want to start with spiritual discipline. If we change our mentality about spiritual discipline, we will do whatever spiritual disciplines we require. By spiritual discipline, I mean the internal training of the heart, mind, and will to do what it takes to be and become a substantive disciple of Jesus. In the next few pages, I want to focus on four kinds of discipline that we don't often talk about. I'm calling them martial or military disciplines. We don't think much about these disciplines because modern bureaucratic cultures are built for predictability and safety and therefore require submissive and docile citizens. To avoid disruption and violence, secular modernity does everything possible to extinguish the wild, virile, and brutal capacity of the human spirit. The problem is that our capacity for power and brutality is not the result of sin, but is a God-given faculty that has been corrupted by sin. Extinguishing our capacity for power and strength makes us not only physically and mentally vulnerable to crime, abuse, and deception, but also utterly unprepared to fight the intense and brutal fight against sin, the flesh, worldliness, and devils. The Christian's spiritual and moral battle is a constant, vicious, and brutal conflict. The gospel answer is not that our capacity for strength and brutality should be simplistically and rebelliously unleashed. Rather, it should be developed and disciplined for proper and necessary action. Before you read on, I need to ask you to have an open mind as you read the next few paragraphs. Some readers, especially those who have been victims or witnesses of violence, may feel a very negative emotional reaction to these ideas. What I say here will feel wrong to some. But if you read carefully, consider the biblical passages I reference, and pay attention to the arguments I'm making, I think you'll find there's a lot of truth here. Truth that we actually desperately need. I believe that if we don't reckon with this truth, we will be left to be continually victimized our entire lives. The Martial Disciplines Vigilance Knowledge and awareness of your enemy with constant attention to its advance, especially in your most vulnerable places. Brutality. The ability and ferocity to deliver the full killing blow against the proper adversary without hesitation or reserve. Training. Constant structured preparation for tomorrow's unknown conflict by diligently developing greater capacity and capability today cooperation, enhancing our potential in all situations through cultivated teamwork, 
Let's look at each of these disciplines up close. Vigilance. Vigilance is a constant theme of the Bible, starting no later than Genesis 4 when God confronts Cain about not being vigilant about his murderous heart. By allowing his hatred to grow for his brother, Cain's brutality was unleashed against the one he should love and protect, rather than against the flesh which was poisoning his heart, mind, and soul. The cost of a lack of vigilance is on display throughout the Old Testament. The New Testament displays it with equal intensity and warns directly against it. In Acts chapter 20, verses 25-32, through 32, Paul gives his last words to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. In those eight verses, he gives six separate warnings to keep watch over themselves and over God's flock. Then he gives three more warnings about what's at stake, calling those who would distort the truth savage wolves. Paul ends by saying, so be on your guard. I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Our first step in vigilance is to recognize that none of the advancements in physical safety produced by secular modernity provide for spiritual or moral safety. Spiritual vigilance is something you must develop. You need to know your enemy. You need to know your defenses. You need to know your weaknesses. And you need to be constantly watching for attack. To do this, we need to recapture a lost understanding of human nature, the nature of sin and temptation and spiritual cooperation, the fourth martial discipline. Second, concerning human nature, we need to understand the effect that our sinful condition has on us and others. The only way we can learn to understand our sinful condition is by recognizing that we are not special. We are subject to the same humanity as everyone else. We bear God's image as part of a great creation, but we are twisted in our depraved condition. The good news is that much of the raging of the flesh is predictable. The standard human idols are approval, power, comfort, and control. Medieval Christians categorized the seven deadly sins as pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth, because these are the predictable patterns of our present condition. They're sin's most notorious and effective plan of attack. Knowing them allows us not only to be vigilant against them, but also to be diligent in building the fortifications of their corresponding opposite virtues, humility, charity, chastity, patience, temperance, kindness, and diligence. Third, growing in the discipline of vigilance requires understanding our own self-deception. Theologians have called the effects of sin on our mind and reasoning the noetic effects of the fall. That is, the moral effects of spiritual depravity cloud and corrupt our thinking. Understanding the dynamics of our self-deception is one of the most critical areas of the discipline of vigilance. We must grow in it as fast as possible and never stop growing. Wherever self-deception goes unchallenged, it leaves a door wide open to the enemy. It's the glitch in our firewall. The only way to remedy this is to grow in wisdom and knowledge of discernment and vigilance, and to do so by God's grace with the help of others. Mentors, close and wise friends, elders, and even your enemies can alert you to self-deception you have missed. This is much easier to receive if you accept that because of sin's noetic effects, you are deceiving yourself about multiple things at this very moment. If you receive criticism with that assumption, 
Your heart will burst with gratitude rather than resentment when one of these deceptions is exposed. The outpost where you're not vigilant is the point where you will be conquered. The clamoring of the flesh is never silent long. And like the devil leaving Jesus in the desert, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it only leaves in order to wait for an opportune time to return. Brutality Spiritual brutality is having the guts and grit to do whatever it takes to break free from sin and overcome the flesh. One doesn't need to read the words of Jesus long to know that he tells us to be ready to die in order to follow him. Luke 9, verses 23 to 25 is a good example. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Or consider John chapter 6, verses 54 through 56. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. How do you think that was supposed to make people feel? His original hearers were a mix of nauseated and livid. Why would Jesus intentionally offend people so terribly? While Jesus was clear in the preceding verses that it was spiritual teaching, not a cannibalistic one, he did mean for the image to have a certain brutality. He means to offend our squeamishness. He's trying to awaken something in us that we're uncomfortable with, something we fear. But the very part of us that we fear, our intense capacity for ferocity, is a divine gift empowered by the Spirit to give us strength to fight the battle against indwelling sin. It's hard enough to seriously release control of our life into the hands of Christ. It feels like, and sometimes literally is, the road to execution. Whether we become martyrs or disciples, we all must lose our life to save it. However, what if that's only half of it? Being willing to die to save our life in Christ is hard enough. But what if he demands that you must also be willing to kill to save it? Are you uncomfortable yet? I'm not talking about murder, not in the physical sense, against other humans. That is forbidden by God at every point in Revelation history. But there is a ferocity that is absolutely demanded by him. In Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we are appointed as the executioners of our flesh. We are commanded to use all the internal brutality necessary to free ourselves from its oppression. Coming to Christ brings peaceful clarity and forgiveness, but it also starts a war within the human chest. Faith in Christ brings forgiveness through justification, new life, the presence of the Spirit, and the promise of freedom from sin's power to destroy us. But the very moment Christ gives us peace with God, His Spirit leads us into war against the enslaving tyranny of indwelling sin rooted in the flesh, inflamed by the devil, and reinforced by worldliness. The Spirit brings about a new life in us that leads us to the true virtue we call the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Virtues that bring great freedom and great happiness. 
but the Spirit also empowers us for the brutal execution of the flesh. Consider these Bible passages. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. John Owen summarizes this idea in his warning to be killing sin or it will be killing you. To further stress the brutality that is required, he continues, Now, it being our duty to mortify, to be killing of sin whilst it is in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leave striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. Yuck! You can almost hear the hacking and gurgling. <laughs> That's the point. We read over these ideas so easily now because we're so distanced from the reality of death. At the time when these commands were given, the vast majority of people knew what it was like to kill an animal with their own hands. Killing was an up-close, blood-staining business. Indwelling sin is our implacable and irredeemable enemy. Unlike human enemies who still bear the image of God, sin has no redemptive potential. It is nothing but an infection preventing our full redemption. We are called not only to kill it, but to crucify it, to kill it and dispose of it in the most brutal, painful, and humiliating way possible. We are to give it no delay, no quarter, and no mercy, but to inflict upon it the blood-spattering and bone-crushing brutality it deserves. Where sin lives, it infects, steals, kills, and destroys. It spoils potential, robs happiness, degrades creation, and defies God Himself. It's the most heinous, hateful thing in all of creation, infecting and polluting the bearers of God's very image, wielding divine gifts for evil. If we saw sin for what it is, we would have no trouble mustering the spiritual ferocity necessary to put it to death. We would not fool with it. We would not treat an execution like a picnic. Yet, I fear the average American Christian does not hate or want to kill indwelling sin half as much as he might a Muslim extremist. But they, as with all human enemies, are included in Jesus' command to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and lend to those who steal from you without expecting to get paid back. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 30. The right object of hatred dwells within. Your greatest enemy is in bed with you. It's in your skin with you. The irony here is that without brutality toward our indwelling sin, we can never really love others, especially our enemies. If we are not brutal with indwelling sin, sin will brutalize others through us. We will be selfish, conceited, angry, fictional, bitter, fearful, and distrustful. Only brutality against the flesh can lead to true and real tenderness toward others. 
Love can only come from a warrior's heart. What are you prepared to do? In Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 19, the people of Ephesus burned the equivalent of more than $4 million worth of magic and occult scrolls when they realized they were symbols of false salvation and affronts to the true Lord. They didn't sell them, they burned them. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Apparently, this wasn't a slip of the tongue, since he's recorded saying it again in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, and Mark chapter 9, verse 47. Now, you might believe that Jesus is using hyperbole here, and he doesn't actually want you to gouge out your eye if you look at a man lustfully or envy someone's SUV. But if it's hyperbole, what is the key idea being overstated for effect? Why would Jesus say something that brings up an image as grotesque as a gouged-out eye and a severed hand? The point is simple. You have to be prepared to do whatever it takes. To get free of pornography, would you load accountability software on all your devices and have one copy of your accountability report sent to your mom or your spouse? Would you quit your job to get untangled from adulterous temptation at work? Would you get rid of your television if you knew you couldn't leave it off when you should be investing in your children or your friendships? Would you cut up your credit cards if you couldn't stick to your budget and limit your greed? Are you willing to apologize deeply, thoroughly, with real humiliation when you gossip, lose your temper, or use sarcasm to diminish others? All of these things entail sacrifices of our pride, privacy, comfort, money, and approval from others. Do you see a common theme? Worldliness. Our unconscious second religion makes the actions necessary to secure our spiritual freedom seem unthinkable. A new spirit-empowered ferocity is required to overcome the comfort, power, approval, and control of worldliness. It takes disciplined ferocity to unleash the brutality necessary to crucify the flesh that stands against the crucified Christ. Sin is not cute. We need brutality as well to carry us through another obstacle. We must be prepared to look into the face of the indwelling sin we are determined to kill and see not a menacing beast, but a cute little baby fox. Discipline prepares us for this moment by allowing us to remember the truth about what it is in front of us. The flesh affects our reason, will, and emotions as much as it affects our physical instincts. That means that when you look at the sins of your flesh, you'll see fluffy baby foxes not rabid wolves. Unless you're ready, you'll never be able to bring yourself to kill them. Scripture addresses this in what may seem like an unlikely place. Song of Solomon is filled with romantic love. At one point, the two lovers have apparently gone away from the city to have a romantic interlude in a rural vineyard. But amidst all their celebration of the health and fertility of their love, they sing, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. 
You see, foxes were common in Israel, and every spring they would have litters of kits. Before foxes became hunters, they need to cut their teeth by chewing on stuff. And in a vineyard, there's only one kind of large vegetation they can cut their teeth on, grapevines. So that's what they do. They frolic around the vineyard and chew the grapevines, ruining them just when they are in bloom. For the newlyweds in the romantic poem, the line has two meanings. Most literally, you can have either foxes or wine, but you can't have both. So the cute little foxes need to be rounded up and destroyed if you want the vineyard to be fertile and produce wine. Metaphorically, the bride is calling on her lover to protect their love by destroying anything that would come between them. Doing so was a demonstration of the ferocity of his passion for her. The things that will ruin our future and destroy the flowing wine of God's blessing will look like cute baby foxes when it's time to deal with them. You'd better get ready to kill something, spiritually speaking, that seems lovely and harmless if you want to have a future. In a sermon once, I told the story of how I caught a rabbit in my garden and killed it with my bare hands first thing on Sunday morning. People complained about that story. They wanted to hear that I was up early Sunday morning praying instead of killing fluffy animals. They were disturbed by the image of their spiritual leader smashing the head of a fuzzy bunny. But that story shouldn't be disturbing. It should be comforting. I was vigilant over our garden that year, and in the summer and fall we had a great harvest. Probably a hundred pounds of green beans alone grown in my tiny suburban plot from which we blessed numerous people. This year I got busy with church work and traveling, and I wasn't vigilant over my crop. Well, the rabbits got through my fence and devoured everything. They ate the cabbage, kale, lettuce, and herbs. They bit off the pea plants and the bean plants as they sprouted, destroying the whole year's growth. I tried to be vigilant, but I wasn't vigilant enough to fight the rabbits. They multiplied, got hungry, they found the weak points in my defenses, and they devoured the season's harvest. To become spiritually substantive, we just don't have to be ready to die. We have to be ready to kill. We have to declare untempered and absolute war on indwelling sin. We cannot stop striking so long as it remains living. And the reality is that sin will never be fully extinguished on this side of heaven. So we can never take a vacation from killing it with the utmost brutality. Understanding and embracing the spiritual discipline of brutality, especially when put together with wisdom and vigilance, is one of the most definitive steps in becoming a person of spiritual substance. Without spiritual brutality, spiritual substance is ultimately impossible. If you are not killing sin, you are inviting it to kill you. It is cutting its teeth on your future right now. So give no quarter to its furry face, Catch the foxes, or there will be no wine. Training While we know not what tomorrow will bring, and know all too well how far we have yet to go to look like Christ, the heart of spiritual discipline is always seeking to grow, progress, and be formed into the image and mind of Christ. This is why substantive disciples need a training mentality. This requires coming to at least three realizations, all of which can be found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1-11. through 11. I encourage every Christian to study this passage in depth. 
but I will highlight just a few key verses as we go through this section. First, training requires a single option mentality. That means that you only accept one option as a possible result. If quitting is an option and the task is profoundly difficult, then you will take that option. People tend to persevere when they give themselves no other choice, when failure is unthinkable. Hebrews 12 verse 1b says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The single-option mentality requires throwing off all other options, hindrances, and distractions. All discipline requires single-mindedness, and spiritual discipline is no exception. The second realization is that God is our trainer. The job of a trainer is to put the right stresses on players to make them better. You can't see God as a trainer and think that his job is to make your life easy. The Father's providence works for our growth in the stresses we need in order to grow. The Holy Spirit is our constant and present counselor, inspiring, instructing, illuminating, rebuking, convicting, and focusing us on the training we require next. Jesus is the concrete example on whom we fix our attention and from whom we learn about God's good character and will. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The book of Hebrew continues. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. By calling Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith, the Bible is telling us that Jesus is the best and perfect example of the race we are called to run. His race did something we could never do. And in saving us, he did for us what we can't do for ourselves. His work was also the perfect example of a human life lived completely for God, throwing off every entanglement, hindrance, and distraction. Seeing his determination through opposition can prepare us for the hard road of training. If the road wasn't long and hard, he wouldn't have to prepare us to not grow weary and lose heart. When we see the triune God training us, we can see purpose in difficulty, and we will no longer be trapped in the immature mentality that hardships are a sign that God doesn't care about us. The third realization is that we must receive all hardship as discipline, as training. This is perhaps the hardest of the three realizations. For this, we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. It is difficult for us to accept words like rebuke and chasten, words that seem to imply punishment alongside the word discipline. It's fairly understandable that people read this verse to mean that we should endure hardship as punishment, because in modernity, we have tried to remove rebukes and punishments from the process of training and development. It's natural for us to see discipline as meaning either training or punishment. 
But no original reader of this letter would have thought of it in those terms, especially if they had read the Old Testament. The part of the verse above in quotations is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs are a sustained exhortation to wisdom and discipline, to substantive life in God. Early readers of Proverbs and Hebrews would not have seen discipline as being within the category of punishment. They would have understood that rebuke and punishment were parts of the larger picture of disciplining a child to become an adult. Painful aspects of a more holistic training which are all included in the idea of discipline. Knowing the context of the Proverbs quotation helps us understand the meaning of these verses. The author of Hebrews is pointing his readers back to the Bible's longest teaching on disciplined wisdom. He's also pointing to Jesus, who is unjustly oppressed by sinful men. Since the author of Hebrews includes Jesus in the category of those who suffered hardship, it's clear that accepting all hardship as discipline does not mean accepting discipline as punishment. Jesus was not being rebuked or punished by God. It might be better to say, accept all hardship as training. If we develop a training mentality, we'll learn to embrace hardship as training rather than being discouraged by them and continually asking God, why is this happening to me? A training mentality drives us forward. A questioning mentality destroys our motivation and keeps hardships from having their best transformative effect. This also means that we can turn most of our lives into training because life is tough. With a training mentality, we won't grow only when we are doing spiritual practices. We'll find that almost every situation in our lives that could be an opportunity for faithless questioning is also an opportunity for training. Cooperation Substantive discipline realizes that we do best together. Jesus didn't leave behind a single successor. He left behind the church. He put together a band of disciples with little obvious hierarchy, but who loved each other and were clear on their mission. The Bible emphasizes the importance of fellowship. We are commanded to hold each other accountable, to bear each other's burdens, to encourage one another, and to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Unfortunately, many Christians who get a vision for substantive discipleship progressively become spiritual loners. It's complicated to be focused on discipline when others think they're being legalistic or uptight. Unfortunately, many Christians who get a vision for substantive discipleship progressively become spiritual loners. It's complicated to be focused on discipline when others think you're being legalistic or uptight. The growing believer will often feel out of place or feel a sense of superiority growing in our heart. And at the end of the day, it's undeniably true that many people bring more complication to your life. But Jesus both gave us to each other and taught that sacrificial love is the queen of the spiritual marks. Community doesn't only bring complication, it can also bring strength. Cooperation improves vigilance since other people see your weaknesses much more easily than you. They can tell you're going off track before you notice, and more eyes make the vigilant safer. Ever try sneaking up on a flock of birds? It's basically impossible. You can't beat 340 eyes. But some Native American tribes taught their children to play touch the deer 
because despite a deer's superior individual vigilance, it still has only two eyes. Cooperation helps us master spiritual ferocity and brutality. Since we have so few good cultural role models of proper human ferocity, our practice of it requires the supervision of a community committed to its proper use. Left without improper focus, ferocity can become devoid of love. The Church gives us good role models for spiritual ferocity as well as accountability in its application. Cooperation also helps us train. Everyone trains harder with someone else cheering them on. Just being around each other and being committed to the same goal pushes everyone onward. When we're surrounded by people who are committed to spiritual training, we will find ourselves moving farther and doing so faster. Cooperation brings out the best of our competitiveness. Embracing Jesus in Embracing Discipline We've considered a lot in this chapter, but this last point may be the most important. We embrace discipline in order to embrace Jesus. We don't do it so that God will approve of us. God approves of Jesus and applies that approval to us through justification by faith. We don't do it so we can control our lives. We must trust God's loving providence and know that we can never control our lives and we shouldn't want to. We don't embrace discipline so that we can have power. We grow in discipline through the Spirit's empowerment. And what we freely receive, we are called to freely give. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. We don't do it for comfort, because discipline will keep us on our mission. And mission is always drawing us into discomfort. We embrace discipline in order to embrace Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says it this way. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That is the only gospel-centered way to see the call to embrace discipline. Embracing discipline must be embracing Jesus. But wait, let's pause the Sunday school answer and get more specific. Look at the verse a little closer. It doesn't say, I press on to take hold of Jesus. It says, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. What is that? It is the purpose for which Jesus saved us, the end he has in mind. It is that those he saved would become his and become like him. He took hold of us to be gods and godly, or to use the words of the preceding verses. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for those whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8-11. through 11. It's all there. Jesus took hold of us to give us righteousness. He put the resurrection power of the Spirit in us, and grows us in righteousness as we share in his sufferings. 
Ultimately, we become like him, even in the kind of death we die, completely entrusted to the purposes of God the Father. That is what we are striving toward by embracing discipline. It is the why we throw off everything that can hinder or entangle us by escaping diversion. That is what the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12:2, is pioneering and perfecting in us through faith. It is spiritual substance. This striving and unhindering of ourselves requires discipline, especially what I have called the martial disciplines. It means making war not against our human enemies, but against indwelling sin. It means unleashing the ferocity necessary to put to death the flesh and to utterly reject the constraints of worldliness in how we do it. It means becoming single-option mortality people who endure all hardships as training with the goal of substantive godliness. When you see it this way, embracing discipline doesn't belong in the 90-second training montage of our lives. It's so much more interesting than that. It's part of the great romance and drama of walking in the Spirit. It's the greater part of seeking out and knowing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God in all the depths of His riches and knowledge. It is learning the wisdom of the only wise God. And, like lovers in a vineyard, we must kill the little foxes in the spring so we can spend the long winter drinking the wine and enjoying each other.